Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our ongoing celebration of reaching episode 1000, all available on marshallpruittpodcast.com. Following the first special, we have all the same characters back for part two with the addition of one gentleman, a fine man from England by the name of Johnny Molum. Here, we have all manner of things, being fired for drinking too much beer, destroying a vehicle out of rage, an amazing, amazing rookie season by a good friend of ours. We wax on about one of sports car racing's greatest drivers to have ever lived, hijinks with rental cars, going through one of the hardest challenges any race car driver can experience, and plenty more here in the celebration brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA. Justin Bell gifted us with a new hashtag while discussing a 1990s race, the Japanese Fuji circuit as part of the factory Areca Dodge Viper program. Names like Hugh DeShonak, Pedro Lamy, Carl Vedlinger get mentioned. It all centers on a new Italian masseuse signed to help the team and its drivers in the oppressive heat. She left her new digital camera and, well, we'll just leave this with hashtag buttbush. So as you can imagine, being part of a factory Viper effort heading to, uh, on what then really was, as you know, an FIA world championship. We were in Hareth. We were in, you know, we went all over the place. We went to, we went to Japan and America and it was just so exciting to be a you know, to be involved. And we dominated so much. But the great thing was the camaraderie of the people that we had with us. Oh, my gosh. Olivier Beretta and uh, Philippe Gash and myself and um, Carl Venlinger. Really just great people. A little handsome little ex-Formula One driver. Pedro Lamy. So Pedro, me, just there's six of us, I'm missing one, but oh my God, what a crew. So we head to Fuji and Fuji in the summer, not a great place for driving a Viper. And it was so hot. Oh my gosh. So we ended up, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of Pedro Lamy stories, but <laughs> we, we ended up getting, uh, we had the hospitality behind the pits was where that was really our, our driver prep room. You know, it was our rest room is we had the chef there, uh, is where we could go and cool down. And I mean, it was bloody hot. It was the hottest I've ever recorded in a car, 166 in the car. And remember no AC then no AC, no cooling, no nothing, no shit. You're out of shit, out of luck. We had cool suits, which did not a lot, but we were a really fun group, but they had hired Italian girl to be our masseur. And she was very funny and knew how to knew exactly how to handle six European drivers, right? Um, by just being fabulously Italianly dismissive as best she could. However, she was so into taking cameras, uh, pictures on her little uh, new digital camera, and it was that uh, she made a dramatic mistake one night in leaving the camera on the table up in the like our driver lounge so we all decide i don't know who came up with it but let's just say there was there was it probably was a collective idea of what to do so we asked the chef to take a picture of us as we all pulled down our race suits and mooned her right for the picture oh my god i tell you what it looked like well first of all I mean, we all had to look at the picture after just to check we'd got it, you know, the the lighting right. 
But I, I mean, I just look like a British guy bending over, whatever that is. I mean, Pedro Lamy looked like looked like he was at the Kennel Club dog show with this, you know, enormous pair of <laughs> hanging down, like halfway to his <laughs> knees. It was, I mean, we went along the road, uh, you know, it was just hysterical. But Carl Venlager, oh my, and he's a hairy bastard anyway. It looked like, and I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't breathe. I mean, it was the most shocking display of butt bush I've ever, ever seen. We, of course, now we were beside ourselves with laughter, so we put the camera back down. Anyway, race next day, all done. We had to get on the train back into Tokyo the next day, and we set the show neck up for this, right? We said, ask Natalie or whatever it is, ask her to see her camera photographs from the weekend and then just go with it. So he, he says, oh, Natalie, you have your photographs. I'd love to see, I'd love to see. So he sits there and he didn't even know what's coming. And when she gets to this photograph, the scream that came out of this poor little Italian lady's mouth, girl's mouth, and and Deshonek is literally wetting himself to see him laugh that much was but he's doing it with this stern look like you you can't work for me anymore you're a pervert this is appalling how did you get my drivers to do this they're such nice boys <laughs> anyway oh my god we freaking had some times oh god oh. what a great group what a great group um hashtag butt bush i mean hashtag butt bush wayne taylor's known as a bit of a master negotiator Little did we know, those skills might have gotten their start in the mid-1990s while in the midst of an IMSA race. Speaking with Momo founder, team owner, and co-driver Giampiero Moretti, Taylor won the wild turkey negotiations but lost a lot more in the end when Momo pulled a power play. I put a program together with Giampiero Moretti uh, to run his Ferrari, and this... And uh, I was a, I was a real prick uh, then because I'd won a championship and Jean Piro, you know, always wanted to drive, always had a driver and, and I had to share the car. And he was a relatively okay driver, but he wasn't quick enough to win races. And um, one race that sticks out is uh, we were racing at Texas World Speedway and he used to drink this alcohol called Wild Turkey. And, and I had all our sponsors at the track that day. And before the race, I said to him, I said, hey, listen, I've got tons of sponsors here. So, you know, if you start the race and I'm not going to be competitive, we might annoy all of them. So I think it's best for me to start and then to at least get them upbeat to, to know that they're putting their money with the right team, you know, and then you get in for the end. And he agreed. So it was the year that Michele Alboreto was here in the Ferrari and there was Weaver and the Dyson team and Andy Wallace and Yannick Delmas and all those guys. There was a couple of 333. So I'm, I'm, I, get, I, I start the race, I get into the lead and I'm radioing to Kevin Duran, who, was, who ran the program. And I said, Kevin, ask Jean-Pierre if I buy him a case of uh, the wild turkey, would he let me stay in the car for the whole race? And then back and forth, we were talking and he was saying no. And then I said, okay, what if I give him the prize money if we win? No, he's going to drive. I said, okay, what about if I got him 10000 And this was going on while I was racing. You're negotiating to stay I'm in the car with the yeah. team owner while trying to win the race. Yeah. So I, this, this was really, it was fantastic. I, uh, I loved it. And so, so it was time for me to come in. And I came down the pit lane 
And uh, there was Moretti standing ready to get in the car. And I waved my finger at him and said, I'm not getting out the car. And I said to Kevin, put the tires in the fuel and I'm staying in. I'm not getting out. And Moretti was just standing there. And, of course, time was going and they let me go and won the race. And, <laughs> and I think Alvaretto came second. And, he, and I just met him and was a big fan of his. And um, we became quite friendly um, over the years. It was a story when I, when I got to the winner's circle, you know, everybody was excited. And I said, where's Mr. Moretti? And they go, no, he's gone. And he had flown back. And then, um, and then it was pretty tough for a couple of weeks with him. He was pretty pissed off. And then at the end of that year, the last race was in New Orleans. And I get a call from him to say, oh, Mr. Moretti's not coming to the race, so you're, you're not going to have a car there. And at the same time, my sponsor's coming. So it took another negotiation, again, to get the car there. If we were to give Johnny Mullum a nickname, ever-present might be fitting due to the many years of competition in the American Le Mans series. Grand Am, IMSA, 24 Hours of Le Mans, Sebring, Daytona, and so many other championships in between. What about the ability to outrun the finest competitors, the fastest cars? What about taking those skills to the highway and streets and seeing how they measure up against those with firearms and sirens and handcuffs? Let Johnny take you back to the mid-2000s, the fine state of Ohio, and an example of how not to go about getting home after a motor race. To set the scene, it's 2004, it's mid-Ohio, so I was racing for the Asemco Celine team with the factory-supported American muscle car, the S7R, which was a beast of a car to drive, and uh, most of the fight was the Corvettes, the GT, uh, GT1, this is the GT1 class of the American Le Mans series and the Corvettes that we were up against. We also had the Maseratis come over being run by the Italians and the Lamborghinis, which um, I believe were run at the time with uh, the Tracy Crone team with uh, Dick Barber, I think was running those. So there was five or six GT1s. I think Ryan DL also featured in a privateer Corvette at times. I wouldn't say it was a, uh, amazingly competitive, but by GT1 standards, it was very, very competitive, especially in the American Le Mans series. And this race, I was racing with Terry Borcello, as I did for two or three years, actually, with the with the Celine. And uh, we'd done the race. I'd had a, a couple of races where I'd been out there and not been able to come home. And then there was also only a weekend um, and then I had to get back out for another race. I believe the one after this mid-Ohio race in the American Le Mans series that year was Mossport. So I was very keen to get back home and see my family. So I planned everything before the race even. I checked out of the hotel. I knew that after the race it was a little bit tight and uh, I was going to have to get a, a get a wriggle on to get to Cleveland Airport, which I was then going to fly from Cleveland into JFK and then JFK back into London. And the way it was working, I'd have a couple of days at home and then the following weekend um, I'd have to fly out probably on the, the Wednesday uh, back out to Mossport. So I needed to get back. The race went uh, remarkably well. It was kind of... Uh, changeable weather conditions it rained and didn't stop raining but the actual race itself i believe we kind of finished it in the dry but then it started raining but we were fortunate enough terry and i to actually get on the podium which normally i've been totally delighted about that but obviously in multi-class racing when you get on the podium it's not a case of just getting up there getting your pot waving at everyone and then disappearing you have to wait around sometimes so by the time we'd got off the podium and it started raining properly and i was already thinking i was a little bit tighter for time than i would have liked so uh 
I got everything uh, changed out of my overalls, got everything into the suitcases, threw it all in the back of my car. And at this point, actually, I'll point out that my car for this uh, that I'd rented was a PT Cruiser, a nice silver PT Cruiser, which for those of you that don't know, you don't see many of them now, but they became very, very popular for a while. Um, They look a little bit like a London cab, black cab. They're not particularly, at the time, they weren't particularly ubiquitous, so you didn't see too many of them around. So it's one of the first times I'd I'd actually got one of these at a rental, and they weren't that common, which uh, will come back later in the story and uh, bite me. So basically, um, I got in the car, got out of the track, wasn't too bad, traffic was okay. Mid-Ohio is sort of run down some little side roads, the circuit, so you need to get out and get back onto the main interstate that leads you up to Cleveland. So I was going down some of these side roads, got onto sort of a little bit more busier roads, sort of dual carriageway stuff, coming down towards the interstate, raining pretty heavily at this point. I mean, really beginning to chuck it down. And in the US, I hope people won't mind me saying, but everyone drives very, very uh, calmly on the roads. Uh, most of the roads, it's uh, pretty... Uh, pretty much driving Miss Daisy compared to European standards anyway and when it rains they tend to be even more cautious so I was beginning to get slightly frustrated and driving bearing in mind I'd only just got out of the racing car because I'd actually I'd driven the last stint and finished the race so I was kind of in uh, race car mode a little bit trying to not take that onto the roads but probably failing if I'm honest in that attempt I started sort of overtaking people and getting in and out cutting in and out of the traffic a little bit which in America people are pretty chilled about so it wasn't too much of a problem and then we got down to being very close to the interstate where it actually curves right round and up back onto the main highway to lead to Cleveland and uh, there's a lot of people queuing on the in the in the right hand lane because obviously they were uh, waiting to sort of queue around onto this slip road, which was a single lane slip road. And so I thought I'd be super clever at this point. It's chucking it down, real stair rods, heavy rain. I thought I'd go around the outside of everyone that was queuing, you know, and uh, and then pull back in later on and get that way, cut at least five minutes of waiting for this slip road out of the whole equation. So steam down the outside, managed to uh, get on the brakes, pull back in, hitting a few puddles, pull right back in in front of the car where there's a bit of a gap and saying, well, that worked out really well. And then uh, had a good look in my mirror and realized that I actually pulled right in in front of a state uh, a state trooper police car. So I thought, well, that, yeah, that's not too clever. And uh, immediately puts his lights on. We get a bit further around the slip road. So literally right at the beginning, sort of underneath the freeway, pulls me over onto the hard shoulder, gets me to pull over. I stay in the car, which uh, normally is a, a, a good thing. They don't get me out of the car. He came up, tapped on the window. I put the window down. He uh, he asked me uh, if I could uh, give him my license, which I did. He realized that I was English, at which point, you know, he changed his demeanor slightly and sort of gave me a sort of this uh, feeling a bit sorry for me for being English kind of thing and not understanding the rules of the road in the States. So I was being obviously very apologetic, explained that I was in a bit of a hurry, but uh, said, obviously, I've been driving like an idiot and apologized. And he was really cool about it. He just said, you know, don't do it again. Basically, be on your way. So at this point, he's uh, starting to walk away. He was on his own at this point, I must say. Well, there weren't two of them in the, in the, in the car, in the police car. It was just him on his own. And he started uh, walking away. So his back was to me. And I'm thinking, right, I can crack on here. And at that point, I'm looking in my left mirror to make sure I can seed out off the hard shoulder onto the highway and back round onto the interstate. And there's a massive 18-wheeler, 16, one of those real sort of low loaders coming past me at about 
15 mile an hour who's who's level with me at that point and I glance in my mirror and I can see there's about at least another three if not four of him coming around as well right round onto the slip road and I'm thinking crikey I can't fit in between them if I wait for all four or five of these to go past you know I'm going to lose a ton of time and I need to crack on now so I look in my mirror and the state trooper's still walking away from me about to get back into his car so I thought I know what I'll do I'll accelerate on the hard shoulder, undertake the first of these low loaders, and then I'll just pull on in front of him onto the slip road, and then it'll bring me around up on the interstate, and I'm on my way. So I thought, no problem, and, and that's not even you know that's not even that big a deal. I'm sure even if the policeman does catch sight of that, it's not a problem. So I start accelerating. I sort of draw level with this this big uh, low loader. Um, I'm getting up to about 30 mile an hour at this point because I need to get up some speed to get in front of him, and he's slightly ahead of me at this point. So I sort of undertake him, and I didn't realise that the slip road, which was tarmac where I'd been pulled over by the policeman, actually turned into a combination of grass and gravel about 40 or 50 metres in front of where I'd started trying to accelerate past this low load on the inside. So I hit this grass and gravel at about 30 miles an hour and the car sort of goes a bit sideways on me and bounces around a bit, but I keep my footing because I'm sort of committed at that point. And I slide up onto the, get past the, the, the truck and I get back up onto the road and I could put my foot down and I'm gone. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm looking at my mirrors and I get up onto the interstate and I start going. And at that point, I think if I can just put some distance between me and the and the police car that will have had to wait for all these low loaders, then maybe with a bit of luck, when he comes out of the top and he can't see me, he might, if he is deciding to come after me, he might he might just let me crack on and sort of forget about it. So I'm at that point doing like 100 mile an hour, <laughs> weaving in and out of traffic, <laughs> looking in my mirror, looking in my mirror, and I see the low loaders coming around a long way behind me at this point, and the first one comes up onto the highway, and the second, and then the third, and then the fourth one comes up, and I'm looking in my mirror, looking in my mirror, and then I see the police car pop up behind them, and he's got his lights on. And I'm thinking, oh, no, definitely he's coming after me. So at that point, I'm slowing down a little bit because I don't want him to register I'm doing the stupid speeds that I was doing. So I'm, I'm down to, like, 60, 65 trying to hide in amongst the trucks and the traffic because there was quite a lot of traffic on the interstate at this point. And he's coming, and he's coming. I can see he's coming fast. Going back to what I said at the beginning, if I'd been in, I don't know, something a little bit more ubiquitous to a Toyota Camry or something like that, I might have stood a chance of being able to sort of hide in and amongst the traffic. But I'm in a PT Cruiser, and at this point, as far as I can see, I'm in the only PT Cruiser anywhere in the vicinity of Ohio. So I'm, I'm in trouble. And he comes up behind me with his lights on. At the same time, there's another police car comes down from the opposite direction on the highway and goes through one of these gaps. Because obviously in America, you don't have the um, central reservations like you do in Europe. So you can actually a lot of the time just cross over on little roads or even on the grass if you wanted to. But there's a little U-turn area. And he, this other police car coming in the opposite direction, also with his lights on, then does a little U-turn and joins behind me, joins his mate. So I've got two police cars <laughs> chasing me down the interstate. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, how the hell was I stupid enough to get myself into this position? And they come up, and one of them gets alongside me and eases me over. And at this point, I'm not putting up any fight. I'm Whatever they want to do, I'm, I'm easy with it. And the other one blocks me off on the right, and all the lorries and everything having to pull out the slow lane and go past all of this, and everyone's looking, and the lights are on and everything, and they block me off. Outlaw Johnny Molem, holy crap! <laughs> <laughs> they get me out of the car, Marshall. 
they get me out of the car. They say they order me out of the car. The minute I'm out of the car, they've like thrown me on the uh, on the back of the of the car because it doesn't have like a boot as such. It's a PT cruiser. Throw me on on the roof effectively. One of the the, the other police car had two people in it. I guess he'd call for backup because he was on his own. They, and they and the other two have got their guns drawn. So literally, I'm at gunpoint at this point. And the and the other guy, the main guy who told me off before, has put me in handcuffs. So now I'm handcuffed with two guys pointing guns at me, and I'm at this point just thinking, Christ, will I actually, you know, make it to tomorrow at this rate? And the guy's like saying to me, I told you, you're an idiot. What the hell are you doing? Why did you have to drive like that? I'm, I'm arresting you for sort of uh, what did he say? This exact I can't remember what it was, but essentially it was uh, dangerous driving. And then he said to the other two guys, "Okay, thanks, guys. I've got this. Whatever." So then he says to me, "Okay, so you've got two choices here. I'm going to take you in. The situation is this: you either stay in and you stay in overnight, or you, if you have the cash, you can only pay cash. And thank God I had a bit of cash on me. I, I don't normally carry cash, but you can pay the cash. And I can't remember what it was, but it was." 300 bucks, something like that. So it wasn't a massive amount of money. And he said, but you, I, I have to take you in. I've arrested you now. I'm going to take you into, I think it was Lexington. Take you into the nearest town. can pay the fine. If you can't pay the fine, you have to stay in overnight. We'll sort out a court order and everything tomorrow. But you can actually pay the fine now. Um, you can come back to the car and then you can, can be on your way. So I, I was like, okay, well, that's the only choice. So at this point, bearing in mind that I'd worked out to get to Cleveland in time to get my flight, if I hadn't had all of these problems, I probably had about an hour to spare um, in terms of making making my flight so that's why I was kind of why this whole situation had started because I was slightly worried so he got me in the back of his police car which by the way was this rattly old uh, it was a piece of crap honestly it was so old and it's the, the suspension in the back the shock absorbers were definitely done because the thing was bouncing around and didn't smell very nice I got in the car and he said to me I can't I was being superb like uh, yes sir no sir three bags full sir I mean you get arrested at gunpoint it's America you know anything can happen so I've been super polite and he'd obviously been really pissed off at me at the beginning but he got in got me in the car and he started calming down and he he just said to me, so explain to me, yeah, you've kind of told me you're in a hurry, but what, what are you doing in Ohio anyway? You're a long way from home sort of thing. So I said, well, I've just come from the mid-Ohio racetrack. I've been racing there in the American Le Mans series. And he went, oh, my wife's a marshal. She was marshalling today. And I was like, oh, here we go. There's a ray of light here. So I said to him, oh, yeah, I was driving the American muscle car. And, and, uh, the, and he went, oh, the Corvette. And I went, no, 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 the, even better. I said, the Celine S7. I said, oh. I love that car. My wife's favorite car is the S7R, the Celine. I said, oh, great. I said, I wish, you'd, I wish I'd known. You know, I could have got your wife to come in, maybe got some merchandise or whatever. It would have been great. So within about five minutes of talking about racing and everything, he's clearly a fan of racing. He's like my best buddy at that point. I've explained to him, I'm like, look, this is the situation. I've got two young children at home. I, I've been away for two weeks. I've literally got two days at home before I have to leave again. If I miss my Cleveland connection... Then I, on my Cleveland flight, I won't make my connection, and then it'll be tomorrow before I can leave, which means that by the time I get back, I'm almost just going to have to turn around and come back again, so there's almost no point in going home. And he's like, okay, let's see what we can do. So at which point, going back to your original point of the shock absorbers, he starts driving way more dangerously than anything that I'd done, like puts his blues and twos on, he's driving like an absolute lunatic in and out of the traffic in like, 15, 20 minutes, he's got me into Lexington. We get out, we go into the, uh, into the police station. There's a whole line of people in, in, uh, in waiting to pay fines and whatever. I have no idea if it was all parking offences or what it was. There's a real about 15 people in this line. 
and he literally marches me right to the front of the line and he says to the girl who clearly knew behind the the screen there can you um take this guy's uh, thing right now and he gave me the paperwork and i paid the fine he put me back in the car and then he drove me like a lunatic back to my car he put me in the car and he said to me okay be super careful. Don't go more than five miles an hour over the speed limit. You can get away with five over the speed limit. Don't do more than that. And good luck. And he left. So at which point I'm thinking that was a close call. So I'm now looking at my watch and I've worked out that if I drive at sort of the speed limit of 60, maybe 65 at best, I'm not going to make it in time to get my flight. So I'm thinking, well, right, okay, in, in for a penny, in for a pound. And by the way, don't anyone listening to this is going to think, and I agree, will agree with them, that Johnny is a complete and utter bloody idiot for doing this. <laughs> this is a cautionary tale. This is how not to do it. Leave yourself more time, but I'm not good at that. So I then decide that I'm going to drive, at literally, I'm not joking, 110 miles an hour in a PT cruiser, flat out, bearing in mind it's still chucking it down with rain. And I'm thinking, if I get caught, they're going to throw away the key. So I just think, I'm in, I'm in it. Unfortunately for me, there were no more police around no, no one sitting in the central reservation, which I was watching for on the interstate, which they like to do. And I managed to get all the way up to the airport. And at this point, I've probably got, I don't know, 10 minutes maybe before my flight closes. Unfortunately for me, Avis at uh, Cleveland, certainly in those days, was off airport. So I come steaming round into the off airport thinking I need to get a bus now to take me straight away into the airport. And as I'm pulling in, there's a bus pulling out. So I go straight up to the second bus that sat there waiting. And I say to the guy, I'll give you like 100 bucks if you take me now, leave right now. I know the other bus literally just left like 30 seconds ago. But if you take me right now, because I'm so late for my flight and I don't think I'm going to make it. And he said, I'm really sorry. We can't do that because we're not allowed by law or whatever. The deal is we can only have one of our buses at any time on airport. We can't do multiple buses. So I can't leave until the other bus is coming back so i'm like oh god and there was a guy overheard me that works for Ovis. he was a polish guy and he said to me i'll take you i'll take you for 50 bucks and i'm like deal so he said he said to me throw your stuff he had a pickup truck literally around the corner of the building he said throw your stuff in the back of that so i literally threw my suitcase in the back of it and i literally mean throw it i must have thrown it from like 10 feet away i was like i was juiced at this point I get in, he drives me, you know, pretty sensibly but quickly to the airport. We overtake the Avis, the other Avis bus on the way, so I thought, well, I've definitely gained here. And I'll never forget it, I was flying for a company called American Eagle. I don't even know if they still exist. So we come roaring up the ramp up onto the terminal, and American Eagle was one of the very first, I think it was the first stop where it says American Eagle outside. So I get out, I grab my suitcase out of the back, I pay the guy the 50 bucks, and I'm like, thanks, man, I start running, literally running into the building. And as I get in, I can see your American Eagle off to my right, and all the desks are there, and all the lights are off. And there's no one there apart from just on one. At the very end, there's a lady sat at a desk who's just literally standing up and like getting her coat on and everything else as I come through the doors. And she starts turning and I'm like running towards her saying, excuse me, excuse me. And you know when someone's turned and, you, and they're not looking at you and they're you can almost tell from their body language that they're wondering whether they can just get away with pretending they didn't hear you yeah. and like walking around the back, at which point this would have been over this story because... That would have been the end of it. And she, bless her, she just turned at the last minute and looked at me. And I was like running right at her saying, excuse me, excuse me. And she, I could see her thinking, oh, God, I thought, I thought my shift was over. And I looked, got to the desk and I explained to her and I looked at her. And on her name badge, it said Consuela. So I was like, okay, 
I'm going to speak to her in Spanish. Maybe that'll help, you know, get, get this a little bit easier for me. Maybe she'll help me out more. So I start explaining to her in Spanish my situation. I've, I'm late for my flight. I need to get back because of the connection. Can she please help me? And she said, I'm really sorry. The flight's closed. She said, I can't print the ticket because I've shut the computer down but I can handwrite you your boarding pass and also handwrite you your baggage tag. She said, but I can tell you now, there's no way your bags are going to make it um, in time to, you know, to make the flight in time to then go on to JFK. And I said, I don't care about my bags, just so long as I make it. So long as they make it eventually, that's fine. I don't care. So at that point, I wasn't thinking straight. I was just so committed to making it. So she wrote me out the hand boarding pass and I grabbed it, left my bag with her and I start running. So I've only got my helmet bag with me at this point. I start running towards security. But then I suddenly stopped and I thought, hang on a minute. This isn't that long after 9-11. The last thing you need is some bloke to be running flat out towards security, holding a, holding a black helmet bag. <laughs> So I slow myself down just enough when I get into security. Fortunately, there was virtually nobody there. I straight through security because obviously it's an internal flight. So even after 9-11 wasn't too bad at that point. I get going again. I start running again. I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. I get to the gate and I'm running down the gang, one of those little gangway things that goes around the corner at the bottom. And I'm thinking it's going to be one of those Mickey Mouse, you know, Disney moments or Scooby-Doo moments when I get off the end of them, I'm going to literally run off the end. There's going to be no airplane and there's going to be me in midair with my legs going away underneath <laughs> me. I just imagined that I would get there. And as I got to the, round the corner, there's the captain of the airplane standing there. It's one of those little planes where you have one seat on one side and two on the other and you have to kind of duck your head to get, to get in. And he's standing there and he's going, Mr. Molan, I presume. <laughs> I'm like, wow. yes, that's me. And I got on the plane and I sat down in my seat, which was one of the two. So I was next to this woman. And you can imagine at this point, Marshall, imagine all that I've been through running, stressed, everything else. I am uh, and it's been raining. So I'm soaked, everything. I am dripping with sweat. I'm sat there breathing like I've just done a, you know, a marathon. And she must have been thinking, what the hell is sitting next to me? This guy probably stinks. I hadn't, I'd been done the race, I hadn't even showered, I just left, you know. So I'm sat there, probably stink of champagne, whatever, you know. I'm sat there thinking, oh God, thank God I made it, thank God I made it. And then the best part of the story is I got to LaGuardia, got my, um, my case made it, and then I got across what? to JFK and made my flight home. But my case actually did make it. I couldn't believe it. I thought I'd just go down to the conveyor and wait for everyone's bags to come off just on the off chance, and there it was, it made it. So I made it home. So the moral of the story, never, ever travel like that. It's you in the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles and Handcuffs <laughs> and Guns. <laughs> You know what, though? I dine out on that story. So at the time, it was one of the most stressful moments of my life. But it's like all these things. When you're in the moment, it's terrible. When you look back, you actually think, oh, I'm quite glad that happened. It's quite a cool story. There was nothing funny about Mark Blundell's crash, nearly 200 miles an hour, the Rio Oval, as a Cart IndyCar Series rookie in 1996. Brake failure led to the Britain's demolishing impact. Broken leg sidelined from the PacWest IndyCar team with flashbacks of Rio fresh in his mind. His first race back came at Michigan Speedway, 230 miles an hour, no warm-up. It's a story about the hard conversations athletes have dealing with the mental side of recovery from vast injuries, compartments, something Mark Blundell knows all about. The, the incident that I had in Rio in 96 and the comeback. Because, you know, I did. I, I hadn't been over there long 
on my debut season IndyCar, and I think Rio was probably race number two or something. And um, because we had the brake failure, we had the big accident, I hadn't done hardly anything mileage-wise on an oval. And in fact, I'd only done a little bit of testing on the oval at Phoenix. Um, so I'd never, ever been to a super speedway. Coming off the back of the accident at Rio and being out the car for sort of seven odd weeks and feeling slightly pressured because actually Alan had been in the car, I think, at that point, McNeish. Uh, there was a little bit of uh, momentum building on, you know, sort of someone trying to uh, take the seat from me going forward. I felt sort of pressured that I had to get back in the car, probably sooner rather than later, and probably sooner than I should. But of course, I'd never done anything on a super speedway. So my very first time back in the car after Rio was at Michigan Speedway. And as you can imagine, we have no knowledge of a, of a super speedway. We have uh, limited knowledge of driving an oval and having only uh, just recovered off you know, 122G. 198 mile an hour impact into concrete um arriving at a two mile oval uh, with 18 degrees of banking isn't exactly what you uh, want to get yourself back into uh, the stride with you know Jeez. so it was one of those defining moments because i went out basically did about 10 laps or so came in and i said like guys you know you, you're kidding me you know there's something drastically wrong with this it doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't function properly as a race car and they all looked at me like I was from out of space because he, you know, basically, and I remember this John Anderson. You remember Ando? Of course. So Ando basically said, he said, well, he said, well it's not going to work, Shag, because you're not going over, uh, you know, it's like 220 miles an hour. You're still only doing like 198 mile an hour average. So the car's not functioning properly. And it was at that point, <laughs> it was at that point, I'm like, hmm, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> so I actually had a little bit of a block um, because... From the accident, it all kind of sort of came rushing back to me. And at the same time, trying to understand that I'm going to have to really make some big commitment now, both mentally and physically, to get myself through that barrier of breaking the, uh, the average speed to get the car to work properly and get myself, you know, back up and running. And, and I actually said to the guys, I said, guys, yeah, you need to give me a little bit of a break. I need to actually go and leave. And I jumped in the rental car and I drove off and I drove off for about an hour. And uh, I went and sort of uh, drove around and just went through a huge amount of things. Do I need to do this? Should I be doing it? Is it the right thing? Is it right for family? And I kind of got towards the end of it and I said, no, you know what? This is what you do. This is what you do best. Uh, drove myself back to the track, got strapped back into the race car. Within about, I think, another sort of five, ten laps, got myself back up and I was sort of knocking around at 224s averaging. And that was it. That was uh, MB, the race driver, back in play again. But it was a, it was a very defining moment to try and get myself mentally, you know, focused again, and, and having to park the Rio thing and, and park the whole decision making process of you know, there's no way I should be entering turn one at 230, thinking twice about whether I'm really in the right place at the right time. It's actually quite funny. Even today, I was at a business lunch and, and we were talking about the Grosjean accident, and they were like, you know, horrified, and they said, you know, oh, you know, it was like 57g impact, and I'm like. Yeah, okay. I said, but I, I've hit concrete at 122G. Uh, and they were like, what? I'm like, yeah. And a lot of IndyCar impacts are significantly higher than Formula One stuff. So the, so the risk element is, is very high. But all the success on track uh, at whatever level, you could, you could add it all up and put it all together. It was so much easier than having to sort of get in the car and drive away from the track not knowing at that point whether I was ever going to walk back or drive back into a paddock of a race circuit and sit in a race car. So it's probably the longest hour of my life to make that decision. But 
the decision was made, but it was made in a very much a, you know, is this really what I want to continue doing? And if I do continue doing it, I've got to be able to do it to the best of my ability. And that means I've got to go and you know, put everything, everything in a compartment and park it and not go back and think about it anymore. You know, it's done, it's been a par- parcel and it's been sort of character building. But if you're going to go and break the barrier and go and get yourself stuck in, there is no way or, or thought you've got to just be positive in your outlook. I didn't have any sort of screaming at the wheel or, you know, shouting at the top of my voice. It was quite a calculated decision-making process. And actually, once I'd come to terms of it mentally, jumping back in the car and getting on with a job that I understood and did best um, wasn't that difficult. It was, it was purely the mental side of things that was the biggest breakthrough. And most of that took place driving the rental car around for an hour. Yeah, it, it's quite interesting. It's quite interesting in psychology to understand how sports people basically put things in compartments and understand what they're going to do with them, because I think that's the biggest process. Cherubic, angelic, Jan Magnussen looks like the sweetest son the fine land of Denmark might have ever produced. Don't believe it for a minute, David Brabham says of his former teammate in a brief interlude. Well, one day we were testing the Panos in California. Maybe it was Willow Springs. I, I don't know, but we, we were driving in the hire cars down down to the track and there was a, um, a mound. You could see this massive mound of dirt to the right. And Magnuson thought, hang on a minute, that's, that's a good-looking mound. Why don't, we, why don't we go over there and, and have a bit of fun in the hire cars? I get out of the car. We actually got to this mound, and it was massive. So he would take this massive run up in his hire car, go up this this steep hill, and launch this hire car in the air and back down again, and do this on 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 a regular basis. And then, because what happened, the damn hire car literally broke in half. <laughs> so we ended up putting it onto the side of the motorway calling up the hire car, say, look, something came out, we avoided it, we went on the dirt, the, the, the car, something's happened to the car. So they said, okay, yeah, no problem, we'll send a new one out, we'll pick that one up, and that was the last we heard of it. <laughs> just the antics we used to get up to back then. Snapped a car in half. I mean, it's just, he was a nutter back then. He really was a nutter. Oh, I love the back then part. Yeah, I don't know if we need to add a time qualification. Um, yeah. <laughs> he's still, he's still <laughs> raving mad. Few would argue that France's Bob Wallach, nicknamed Brilliant Bob, one of the greatest sports car drivers to ever live. Jim Busby, fortunate to count him as a friend and an employee, the IMSA GTP series. Jim's going to transport us back to Sears Point, starting in 1987, spending a little while longer, though, in 1988, talking about Busby Racing's Porsche 962s in a certain mannerism about Mr. Wallach that was just as famous as his skill behind the steering wheel. Bob, his approach to life, his views and warmth and welcoming nature, those things weren't always equal components. As Jim suggests, while Bob and Dyson Racing's James Weaver dueling over a top five finish. I can tell you hundreds of stories about my days as a driver, as a team owner, putting up with probably one of the best drivers that ever lived, in my opinion. I'm sorry. Bob Wallach. 
one of the finest drivers ever. He was the only guy I've ever known that could take a car that wasn't a winner and make it a winner. That's a really unusual thing. That's really an unusual thing. You don't see it anywhere in racing. Occasionally, a guy comes along that can do that. And Bob Wallach was that guy when he was associated with me. And and I, he amazed me. And yet, he was absolutely a guy who could piss off the Pope on a good day. He would say things that were so completely ridiculous. And yet, he was a big-hearted, kind, thoughtful man. But he was French, and his mouth showed it. And this is one of my funniest stories. I had retired the year before. Bob Wallach was driving our car, one of them. The first year, he crashed at Sears Point and was almost killed, and we destroyed the car. Fortunately, we already built the, the Chapman-type tub, so 87. he wasn't killed, but, but he should have been in a, in a Porsche, standard Porsche tub, which is not Porsche's fault. Remember that the reason that Porsche tubs seemed to be unsafe toward the end was because those cars were designed with about 250 less horsepower and less aero and less tire. And so consequently, they were relatively safe by their daily, by the standard of the day. When we were racing him at qualifying in his nearly a thousand horsepower and racing him at 875 with huge tires and aero changes that were really significant, um, these cars were lethal. And fortunately, it was our first Chapman tub that the right rear tire went coming through turn one at Sears Point, and that baby got into the guardrail. And I don't know if it ever hit the bridge, but it sure got close to it in one of its major flips and demolished the car. There was almost dug a hole and buried the car. Happened in front of me. His, yeah, and Bob broke his shoulder. That was it. And I took him to the airplane uh, to go back to France uh, in a sling. I got him out of the ER. He wouldn't stay in the hospital. And we drove him to the airport at SFO. He flew to France. So anyway, having said all of that, the next year, we, we got an even better car. And we're winning the race significantly. On the last lap, James Weaver in Dyson's car puts a move on Wallach that's very Wallach-esque. I would expect Wallach to do this. And, and Weaver nailed him. Coming into turn 11 there, he faked him to the outside, ducked to the inside, got under him, got around him. And it was a beautiful move and pissed me off royally and, and Bob even more. And so they come in and, and Weaver comes trundling down the pit lane and parks and his team's jumping up and down, Rob Dyson standing at the door. And, uh, and, and Wallach jumps out of our car. I'm standing there. I expect him to say something to me, and he doesn't. He he takes his helmet off and throws it across the pit wall and storms down to uh, Rob Dyson's pit, which was probably eight or ten down from us toward the start-finish line. And I'm thinking, oh, this isn't going to end well. So I take off after him, and he's on a dead run. Weaver is sitting in the car with his helmet on, but his shoulder harnesses and buckle belts all undone, and he's got his helmet on. Bob storms between uh, Dyson and James Weaver and grabs Weaver by the epaulettes on the top of his suit, which we all had at the time. They were a safety rule. Most of them said Goodyear on them or BF Goodrich or whatever. He grabs him by the epaulettes, and he jerks him out of the car with all of his might, and Weaver's helmet hits Bob right in the forehead. Within, within a split second, the blood from Bob's forehead is now squirting all over Weaver, the car, everybody standing there. And, and I'm just going, Bob, you dickhead, get out of here. What, what are you thinking about? 
And, uh, and, he, and he, he looks at me with blood running down his face. Rob Dyson's in shock. James Weaver's got Bob's blood all over him. He still has his helmet on. And he's halfway out of the car. And Bob has virtually knocked himself out with Weaver's helmet. And so, so I'm thinking, oh, this is not. I try to get a hold of Bob's arm and drag him away. And he, t- he turns on me like some kind of wild man and starts running down the pit lane the opposite way. Turn, you know how you went uphill to where the transporters were at Sears Point? Yes. He runs up the hill, goes into our transport, and grabs a towel and starts trying to wipe this blood. He, have you ever seen somebody's head bleed? Because they bleed, they squirt, and they bleed forever because the skin is so tight on somebody's head. When it opens, it stays open. So he's up there standing in there with a, a white towel, which is now bright red, on top of his head with his driving suit bloody and hanging down around his waist. And I look at him and I say, Bob, let me ask you a question. I don't know what that was all about, but you really look like an idiot. But i got to ask you an even bigger question than that. Why are you such an asshole? What, what is it that causes you to be such an asshole? And do you know what he said to me? He's got blood all over this towel. It's on his face. It's on his arms and everything. He looks at me and he says, Jim, I'm French. Did you know how many times France has been invaded over the years? And we don't trust anybody. As a matter of fact, being French, we don't even like each other. That's why I'm an asshole. (laughs) And I I looked at him and I said, oh, okay, I get it. And I walked away. (laughs) Of all the races we won and all the fun we had, that's my best Bob Wallach story. And when I think of, of a guy who was perhaps one of the most remarkable racing drivers I ever dealt with, and I've had a couple. That's the guy, and yet that's who he was. That was his personality. And he made no excuses about it. And then, of course, he blamed it on being French. (laughs) You never know who's watching you perform, as Ryan Eversley recounts in a poignant tale from the Rolex 24 Daytona, where he anchored the employee-owned Honda of American racing teams, Acura NSX, IMSA GTD effort. I think one of my most proud accomplishments in the last few years, and it's been on my mind a lot because we're getting close to the Daytona 24 hour, was having the Heart NSX program at the Daytona 24 hour in 2018. We had a small group of volunteers. We don't have the budget that the Shank team has or you know, any of the any of the big GT teams. And we qualified fifth on the pre qualifying session they give you at Daytona over and GTD. And I think Alvaro Pret and the Shank car was fourth and he was like a I think we were within a tenth of each other or something. And seeing the the look on everyone's face at the heart team of just pride and knowing that they can do the same as literally an IndyCar team now, you know, with the Shank guys who I think are top notch. And seeing that they can do the same thing that a shank team can do, uh, I thought that was that was super cool. And then in the race, at the end of the first hour, we were fifth or fourth, and I had to put a bumper on the Lamborghini kid that won the race later. But basically, I had run past the shank cars, so I was the highest place Acura, and we got the thing up to fourth. I think I was passing him for fourth at the first hour, and that car went on to win the race, and we had the pace. Now, we had a couple drivers that had gotten up to speed in a GT3 car at that point. So when they got in, we, we did the traditional kind of fallback. I think we ran around the top 10 for the rest of the race and eventually had a problem. But 
that first hour, I knew damn well I wasn't in the two shank cars, and I wanted to make sure everybody knew it. And so I thought I had a fantastic stint running up to the top four in GTD, which is really hard to do, and being the highest place Acura. And the coolest thing that happened was when I got out of the car, John Ikeda, who's the basic Acura boss of North America. Yeah, he was an He was an he was in our pit box. He wasn't in the Penske pit box. He wasn't in the Shank pit box. He was in ours. And he was, he's standing there and he's got this big smile on his face. And he's like, we were freaking out because we were hearing over the radio that you were coming through the field and we were seeing it. And this team's so important to Honda and Acura because everybody works here and everything. And it was just super cool. And he, and he said to me, he's shaking my hand. He's looking me right in the eye. And he goes, you were driving like you were trying to prove something. And I said, John, I absolutely was. Wow. And it was one of those moments where we both just like had that like respect nod to each other. And then he went about his way and I went about my way for the rest of the event. But it was just like a very, I I understood right there that he respected what I do and I respect what he does, obviously. And it was like, it was one of those moments where you get the recognition you you want that you desperately seek. And he is the boss. You know what I mean? Um, And an eagle flew overhead and shrieked. Yeah, like, like... Lightning bolts shot out, and they were red, white, and blue striped with stars, lightning bolts. It was awesome. I yeah. know it. But that is so, so cool, though, right? Because yeah. how many times have racing drivers who've been trying to make a point delivered a stint where, man, they know it's a good one, and they hope someone was watching, and you get out of the car, and you get high five from your crew and patch on the back and everything else. And you go back to the motor coach and get yourself uh, an energy bar and some orange juice. And that's as far as it goes. Yeah, Having the freaking yeah. boss of bosses waiting to receive you. That's the dream. Yeah. It was one of those moments I'll never forget because that's the guy I, I need to think that I do a good job to keep being a factory driver, you know? And so uh, we're going into 2021, almost every factory, it seems like, is shutting down or cutting back their motorsports plans, albeit a few. And I've got a contract in front of me, you know, for next year. And during COVID this year, a lot of people didn't have work or they didn't have jobs or, that you know, no one knew I was uncertain, you know, and Honda took care of me and didn't ever question it. And that was really something that I, I'm really proud of, you know, and I have, I have the most passionate fans, I think, like in the sport because they tweet all the teams they want me to drive for every day. <laughs> and I love Roger it. Penske, by the way, said, we got it. We understood. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. 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 Brendan gone was telling me the other day that he talked to one of the higher ups of Penske because Brenda was one of their first NASCAR drivers. And he said, when he called, they go, Oh yeah, we're well aware. <laughs> we're well aware. It's amazing to have that kind of people support you and, and, and care about you enough that they're willing to literally embarrass themselves by going back to the same Twitter account or Facebook or Instagram saying, hire this guy, hire this guy. And I love that so much. And I think the message I would send to those people is I know I'm not in a DP car and I'm not in a GT car, but I have a paid factory ride, you know, to do TCR or anything else I can get my hands on. And I'm working on stuff all the time. I'm thankful for what I have and the people that are supporting me. I, I, I get overwhelmed thinking about it because it's so, so damn neat. Alan McNish worked with a lot of disturbed people. Andy Pilgrim, certainly one of them. We're going to 1997, where we, Alan, shares the adventures driving Yak and Roar's priceless Porsche 911 GT1, risks placed in that car that certainly didn't sit well, and because it's Andy Pilgrim, there's a sex shop story, of course. My first introduction was actually to Las Vegas, and I flew into Vegas, my first race with Roar. 
And uh, Jochen was a very good businessman. And he used to race. He had a GT1, which was probably valued at a million dollars back in 97. So, you know, it's going to be a fair whack now if you think of uh, in today's money. And we were about a tenth of a second off pole position to the Panos that was leading the championship. And they had stuck me in as the sort of young kid to qualify. And so I qualified a tenth off in the first run. And Brad Kettler was leaning in and Jochen leaned into the driver's door. And we switched the tyres uh, right to left. Basically, Brad said, you're a tenth off. And I said, well, how much do you want this? And Jochen said, I want it. Oh, okay, well, shut the door and off we go. And coming into there's a always remember it was just perfect the way it happened you have got the back straight and then it was a long right hander that tightened up into a left hand hairpin onto the banking again and you had this was h pattern synchromesh uh, gearbox so you had to do a bit of healing and towing you had to dip the clutch you had to do a bit of everything apart from just throw it into the corner and i threw the car into the corner and went down the gears and as I got it into second, it snapped the rear out. And it was everything I could do to hold the car from hitting the concrete wall. But the way it set it up was it was perfect to flick left to get out the corner. And I got pulled and uh, came back in and there was all the congratulations, Paul, very happy, bum, bum, bum. And Jochen said, tell me about the lap. So I obviously told him about the end of the lap. And you could see, just as I was describing it through there, what he meant by give it everything I want the pole position was I want it the pole position but I don't want my car in any sort of risk at all because the blood was draining from his face as uh, I was describing this moment close to this concrete wall with his million million dollar car but as it was we went on and and he won the championship and uh, it was an absolute super time he was a fantastic driver excellent person to introduce me to life in North America. Um, very thankfully, I wasn't married at the time huh. and has stayed to be a very good friend. But if I go a little bit further forward uh, with Andy, there was a situation which uh, we were in Portland racing. But the drinks bottle in the 911 GT1 was right-hand side of the driver's area. So you had the gear lever, you had then the, the tunnel um, back to the, the gearbox diff and everything. And then you had on the right a little drinks holder. And it was quite a big bottle. It was pretty rudimentary. It used to get, you know, scorching hot in there. And uh, Andy had, instead of a drinks bottle, when I got in to go out for the test, he had put in a drinks bottle in the shape of an erect penis. Of which seemed okay until I started drinking out of it, looking down and think, oh my God, there's something wrong here, something wrong here. And so the, the only thing I could think to do was to stop in at the pits, throw it out and shout, there's only enough, only enough room in here for one dick, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the door and off we went again. But uh, I don't know where that drinks bottle went, but thankfully it never returned to the car. Oh, where, where were in-car cameras in every vehicle back then? <laughs> because you uh, taking a drink from uh, the, the source of life. Oh, my God. Jeez. <laughs> oh, uh, he, uh, he's an absolute star. Wayne Taylor is back with a yarn about his first real break in sports car racing. Kyle Lamy Circuit in his native South Africa. Kremer Brothers, Porsche 962. James Weaver's name is mentioned yet again. Seafood is certainly mentioned. We speak about Le Mans, talks about writing a press release, and uh, it's just a typical Taylor story. And if you're prone to nausea, 
this might be one to skip. So, 1987, I was living in South Africa. I just won the South African Formula Atlantic Championship. And at the end of that year, they had a sports car race in South Africa, and Kramer was out there with his 962. We had a race, and I'll never forget, James Weaver was going to be my teammate, who I didn't know. And they, they told James to go out first. And so he goes out, and the next thing they say, no, James is sick. He stopped at, at, at sunset, one of the corners. And I got there, and he literally got sick through his helmet, and he must have been eating mussels and shrimp the night before because they were all over the bloody steering wheel. <laughs> And I had to get in the car and drive this goddamn car with shrimps and and <laughs> muscles that James Weaver couldn't keep in his stomach and literally was vomiting through his visor on the steering wheel. I mean, the stink, the stench was just disgusting. Anyway, so we, um, he, he must have got food poisoning. So we, we had a good race and then got an offer to go to Lamar. And of course, for me, that was the biggest thing, but they needed 30,000 Rand, which is like $30,000. And I had to go around, beg, borrow, and steal money from everywhere I knew. And the bank gave me a loan. And, and we get to Lamar, and it was, it was great because it was still the old Lamar, you know, where the Mulsanne was the Mulsanne. There was no kinks. Uh, the Dunlop Bridge, um, that new section wasn't there. It was the old place. And then the pits were as they were. When you watch the movie of Steve McQueen, you know, walking in, in all the stone and stuff, it was really, really cool. You had achieved many impressive things in South Africa. This wasn't you gradually working your way up onto the international sports car stage. This is no. you getting stuck straight into Le Mans in the Leighton House sponsored yeah. Porsche. It was me, George Fischer, the South African, and Franz Conrad. And I remember Volker Weidler and those guys were around. Everybody was talking about, hey, you know, you got to go flat at the kink. And I kept thinking, you know, what's wrong with these people? You know, it's easy just to go flat out all the way down Mulsanne. And I'm like, you know, what do I know? But anyway, it sounds weird that these guys are all talking about this. And uh, so in those days, and as of today, you've got to qualify in the day. But more importantly, you have to qualify in the night. And you get two days. And uh, so the first day, um, I did a couple of laps. But when I got onto Mulsanne and got into Top Gear, I have never been so scared in my life. I didn't know where the hell I was on the straight. I just saw barriers and stuff everywhere. And I was changing, you know, it was a public road, so there's a white stripe in the middle. And literally with a car with such low drag, with those long tails, if you change from one side of the track to the other, it was like going over a guardrail, and the car would be just all over the place. And when I got to this, I suddenly realized there was a kink where they were all talking about going flat out. I was breaking for the kink because I, I, this was like madness. We're doing way over 200 miles an hour. I uh, got finished practice, and I didn't qualify. I was seven, seven seconds off to qualify. I went home to my little chateau that night and I started writing my press release. I was retiring because oh, I'm too scared. I'm too nervous. There's no way I'm going to do this. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, I phoned Shelly and I said, babe, you know, I think, I don't think I can do this. And da, da, da. I woke up in the morning and I thought, hell, I'm a racing driver. What the f wrong with you, you know? I got onto Mulsa and I just kept my foot flat and got to the kink and kept it flat. And literally in one lap, I was like 10 seconds faster than I was the day before. 
And um, it was such an awesome experience to go to the scrutineering is at the Place de Jacobin, where I'd watched the movie of, of Steve McQueen and, you know, the parade that goes on and everything and being part of the spectacle was really, really, really incredible. And we, um, we finished fourth overall, even though in America, fourth is nothing. You know, in America, if you don't win, you know, you're a loser. But it was, for me, I was really happy with the result. Most drivers spend years working their way towards Formula One and arrive fully prepared for the task. David Brabham in 1990 was not one of those drivers. You know, 1989 was a very successful Formula 3 year for me. You know, I won the British Formula 3 Championship. I won the Formula 3 World Cup at the Macau Grand Prix. Uh, I'd signed to do Formula 3000 with Damon Hill with uh, Middlebridge. Uh, we had Lola Tickford's great combination. Really looking forward to the 1990 season. Middlebridge bought the Brabham Formula 1 team. I get a call the week of Phoenix, which was the very first round. And at that time, Brabham was still using the, the 89 car, which was the BT58. Uh, and I got a phone call saying, um, how would you like to come and do Phoenix for the very first, you know, your first Grand Prix? And I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. I, I've, I've not seen the car before. I've not seen Phoenix. I didn't think that I was, because of F3, I was fit for F3, but I wasn't fit for F1. I just didn't think I would do myself justice. So I actually refused. I said, thanks, but not for me. Didn't think much of it after that. And we, we were getting ready for our very first test in the new the new Lola. Uh, literally, that we were all there the night before, making sure everything's right. And then we got called into the office. I got called into the office, and they said, uh, "We're going to close the three thousand team." It's like what? But, uh, yeah, but that's 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 the bad news. The good news is we want you to be uh, Brabham Formula One driver. And I was like, "What?" <laughs> so I sat there and I thought, "Well." You know, I, I'm probably not going to find another drive anywhere, and I've just been offered to be a Formula One driver. This is all happening a bit sooner than I thought. I thought a couple of years in 3000, and maybe I'd get to Formula One. So literally, I went from from F3 straight to F1, and it was with Brabham's. And I remember, I remember 1989. The BT58 was a good little car, and when I drove it, then I realised why. You know, it was just that why they did so well for a small team. They, they were punching above their weight with that thing. And that was a really beautiful little car to drive. Uh, so, I, so I said yes. And, and, of course, you know, it was a big thing, you know, a Brabham in a Brabham. My dad was there for the announcement and it was special, you know. And I think back, it was still gives me goosebumps to think, you know, there I was uh, in a team that my dad founded with from Turinac. And it was, uh, it, was, it was amazing. But, of course, I didn't know at the time how much difficulties were going on behind the scenes financially for the team. I tested the BT58, like I said, and then my car, the BT59, uh, wasn't ready till the very first race that I was doing, which was round three of the championship in the BT59. So I ended up going out, really shaking the car down, and it would stop half a lap, and that was it. That was end of practice. Then the next practice, same thing, half a lap and the thing stopped. The next practice, I got a few laps and then it stopped. So then it was into qualifying. It was back then in qualifying, you had 30 cars for 26 spaces. Down the back, super competitive. I mean, within within a few 
um, milliseconds, you're either in the race or you're out of the race. And uh, I failed to qualify by three tenths. So I missed out on having my first Grand Prix there. And then we went to Monaco and I managed to qualify 25th and have my very first Formula One Grand Prix at Monaco where my dad won in 1959. I'm sitting in the Brabham BT59 with the Brabham logo on the steering wheel. And I look ahead of me and I, and I see this amazing grid of drivers, you know, Senna, Prost, Mansell, PK, Patrese, Bootson, you know, the list the list kind of goes on. And it was it was cool because, you know, they were people I, I, I got autographs when I went to the Australian Grand Prix in eighty five and eighty six and there I am sitting on the grid with them. So wow. it was it was it was quite surreal in that sense. And I and it was a massive effort to get into the race. It didn't last long. The car was unreliable. So I think after twelve laps the drive shaft blew out and that was it. But you know, it was amazing experience but that they those problems were the signs of things to come and you know the team ran out of money it didn't know if it was going to get to the next race i'd turn up at the workshop and the, sh- the chassis sitting there but there's no engine why is there no engine well we there's no one's paid for the engine yet and we're about to leave to get to the grand prix and it was like that literally from halfway through the season till the end you just didn't know if you're going to make the next race. It was, and of course you couldn't test, you couldn't develop the car. It wasn't a particularly fast car. It wasn't reliable. So it was a very, very difficult first year in in Formula One. And that was the that was my first year in in the in the big game. And unfortunately, it, it didn't quite turn out as I thought when I signed that piece of paper. You had one. The car lasted once in France. You finished fifteenth. You had a single finish in your debut season. Yeah. Can you just share the difference between youthful dreams of, of future dominance and holy shit, this is this doesn't yeah. match. It was a massive learning curve for me. To be to be fair, I, I like I said, eighty nine was a dream kind of year. Everything kind of clicked. Um, you know, I won the championship. And then, because when we went to Macau, you know, you had Schumacher, you had Van Langer, um, you had Morbidelli, Zanardi, you had Hakkinen, you had McNish, Menu, just some incredible names. That, that So many of them went to Formula One. So, you know, me and a whole bunch of those guys on that grid ended up in Formula, I think it was like 15 of us or, or maybe more that went to Formula One on that grid, which was, which is, is amazing. So there was a rich pool of talent and, and, you know, I had the World Cup in my hands. So, you know, it felt like I was kind of floating on water. And, and even then I was thinking two years in F3000. Uh, to be fair, I thought it was going to be two years in F3 Class A, but it wasn't. It was one, bang, won the championship, boom, straight into Formula One. So it all happened really, really quickly. And of course, you know, you have you have these dreams as a driver when you're driving. I didn't have the dreams before, but certainly when I started driving, I was thinking, you know, it'd be great to be in Formula One. And there I was, boom, I'm in Formula One. And of course, you know, as you say, the, the mystique about sitting in a in a Brabham car as a Brabham was extremely special. And then and then you got the flip side of that where there was internal politics. Half the team didn't want me because I wasn't experienced enough. That there was no money. We didn't know, you know, we couldn't develop the car, it was slow. Uh, it was it was very very tough for everybody involved in, in the Brabham Formula One team at the time. So uh, you really had those. <laughs> let's say went from cloud nine to to down to earth in a in a bit of a, a bit of a bump. 
that's for sure. But having said that, they helped to lay down some really important foundations for me to have a really good sports car career. So I, I can't complain, and I'm not complaining. Uh, the, these things uh, actually turn out to be silver linings in the end, and um, that's that's how I see it. We're staying with Formula One, courtesy of our pal, Alan McNish, 1989, Ayrton Senna, McLaren, Alan Prost, Estoril, manual gearbox, poor maths skills. Oh, Alan. I had signed an agreement with McLaren. I was 19 years old doing British F3. And part of the agreement was I had to win the British F3 championship and also complete a successful test in a Formula One car. And then that would activate the actual testing agreement that would run through uh, from 1990 through to 92. And I did the test in Estoril. And I was a bit nervous of flying, but thankfully and very kindly, Ron asked if I would travel down on their private jet. So that was all quite cool. I uh, jumped onto the jet, and fortunately the jet had a bit of a technical issue about halfway through, and all these alarms kept going off, which actually was false alarms, as it turned out. So I you know, turned up a little bit nervous, uh, but ultimately settled. And uh, the next thing was going out for dinner with Ayrton Senna, who, you know, as a 19-year-old, um, clearly was completely utterly gobsmacked because that he was actually in the car at the sister side of the garage. And so I had the dinner, got in the car the following day, and I did some laps at the end of the day. And uh, I'd been used to, what, 180 horsepower or something in in a Formula 3 car. And I'm going around the hairpins in Estoril, and there's four hairpins there, and they're all second gear. thinking, Christ, this car's not really that quick. I'm a bit disappointed, actually. I'm sort of on the throttle and flat out, and nothing's happening, and it's pulling up the hill. And uh, we're talking the Honda V10 engine at the time. And then I would, it was a sort of funny gearbox as well. It was an H pattern, but six gears. And I was struggling a little bit uh, between fifth and six I would always hook it a bit funny but it, yeah, it was okay but round the hairpins I was absolutely shocked how slow this thing was uh, on acceleration and came in and it turned out the reason it was so slow was because I was actually only using fourth, fifth and sixth <laughs> by accident I had hooked second gear at one point instead of fourth gear and when this thing took off then it bloody took off and then I realised what, you know, 700 horsepower of what it was at the time actually felt like. To think the first sort of five laps of uh, the my ever test, which would never happen today because you clearly have got a paddle shift. But with an H pattern, then it, it could quite easily happen. Uh, we were sort of toodling around the hairpins in fourth gear. But my dad was there and he was taking pictures because he wanted some pictures of his son driving a Formula One car, which clearly I would like those pictures as well. However, of that first ever test, the only pictures we have of the grandstand and the grandstand and the grandstand because Dad didn't realise you had to pan a camera to try to catch the car or stand at an angle or something like that. So I've got probably 25 pictures of the Estoril grandstand instead of 25 pictures of me driving my first Formula 1 test. So I've got no memories of this test whatsoever. No, no, no pictures of this test whatsoever. Just purely the beautiful memories of... The dinner with Senna, you know, him telling me what I needed to do, uh, me obviously bluffing after having gone round the hairpin and forth, because this was the days before data as well. 
So, you know, it took about a day and a half for them to work out what had actually gone on. And uh, then to actually work out that the car had six gears and how to use them and then thrash it around for for a test. It was absolutely stunning memory, but without any pictures. I also love the, the general picture of you in the wrong gear, not knowing it, thinking these Formula One cars aren't particularly impressive and probably going, people think this Senna guy is good. This stuff is easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is like, what, car control? This isn't car control. <laughs> You know, bloody hell, it's it's slow. But then, you know, like I say, when I, I snicked second gear and it was at the, the first of the four hairpins, I remember, it just took off up this hill. And I was at the top of the hill before my brain had worked out what had happened. You know, it was just incredible acceleration. But the, that was the, the point, I suppose, coming back to it. That engine was so torquey. You could do anything with it. A second gear corner running around in fourth and you could get away with it. It wasn't quick, but you could get away with it. Whereas, uh, you know, other engines that I've driven since then, you would struggle to be able to achieve that. But it was such a torquey, torquey, beautiful engine that forgave pretty much everything, even, you know, a, a young racing driver that didn't, wouldn't be able to count to six. With all he achieved in the sport, that Indy 500 win in 1986, three kart IndyCar Series titles spread across two decades, it's easy to overlook. An absolutely incredible rookie season. Bobby Rahal authored in 1982. Team owner Jim Truman and team manager Steve Horn created the upstart True Sports organization that would bring the Ohio native to racing fame later in the decade. Bobby's two wins and five podiums were second only to Penske Racing's Rick Mears, who won the championship. Not bad for the brand new IndyCar team with its unheralded driver. But it didn't get off to the best start at round one on the one-mile Phoenix Oval, which makes for an even more improbable outcome. You want to you want to start telling that story about just how traumatized we were following the, the Phoenix race, where none of us in that team, and we were again in those days, you might have five guys on your car. It's not like today, you know. You didn't have engineers all over the place. You didn't have damper people. You didn't have this. You didn't have that. It was you know a couple mechanics, a crew chief, you know, and your team manager and the team manager's wife, you know, and that was it. And you know, we had been successful as a group. You know, Steve Horn had been successful with VDS racing. A couple of the guys came with him, had been at VDS as well. These were people who would who who'd achieved success in five thousand and K and M and other things. And and we get to uh, to Phoenix and you talk about fish out of water. I mean, we didn't have a clue. <laughs> the upshot, you know, the first first stop I mean, we were running maybe 15th or 18th or something out of 25, or, yeah, but we were towards the back. I don't think I'd been lapped yet, <laughs> but uh, come in for the fit pit stop, and of course, you know, they set the car on fire. They set me on fire as well. Uh, you know, there's, there's a great shot where the car is kind of up by its own at the end of the pit. Uh, near pit exit and I'm you know I'm walking around the whole back of my suits all kind of crispy critter and you know and, and we were so shell-shocked uh after that race that we didn't even go to Atlanta we just like Steve said we're not because of our next race after after Atlanta was Indy and it's like we need to get our act together you know we need to figure out what the hell's going on we did two things we we, we got Lee Dykstra to come in and help us. And Lee's a very accomplished engineer. Had been around a long time and done a lot of things. i never forget, we went to uh, TRC, which at the time was not part of Honda. It was next to it, but it was, it was, it was an independent 
uh, entity. And they, they, they taped a big magnet helix gauge on the dash hoop in front of me. And they, they put uh, pressure sensors all up and down the underwing. And it was like, okay, go out, go, go to 8,000 RPMs in fifth gear. So I'm going 8,000 in fifth. And, and then I have to come in and tell them where the magnet helix gauge was saying. And so we spent all day doing that. And it was you know, so crude, right? Freezing cold. Human so data crude. recorder. I'm the data recorder. <laughs> and, and yet from that, we got kind of a, we were, that, was our, that was our arrow map. We were plotting our arrow map. You know, you talk about that today and it seems so ridiculously simplistic. But you know what? Everything was kind of in those days. We go to Indy and had a reasonable race, so he dropped out. But yeah, I mean, it was, I, th- I think, you know, of course, we won at Cleveland. I don't want to say there was an expectation, but, you know, for us, we were back on home turf. We were on a road, you know, it, it was back in our our experience. You know, we could, we felt comfortable. And of course, that was a long race and we managed to win it. But the race that really, I think, got us going was we were at Milwaukee, the first Milwaukee race, which was right after Indy. And um, with Lee's help, we were really, I think we qualified fourth or something like that and uh, running quite good. And second, third, I was racing with Mario. And unfortunately, the, the right rear rocker arm collapsed. So I, um, luckily with no contact, but, you know, but at least we'd been competitive, you know, on an oval. And it was, a, you know, that was a real sense of satisfaction. And in fact, we went back to, to um, Milwaukee in August and ended up finishing second there. That, again, that gave us some confidence that, you know, now we were getting a little bit of a, of a, as a group, a little bit of a feel for it. We learned a lot at Indy, you know, a lot about wastegates and this and that. And Because, again, we went to Indy and nobody knew anything. Other than, other than the track went left, we, we, nobody had any idea <laughs> otherwise. The, the, the race that really, for me, was the most satisfying race that year was Michigan in September. It was a 150 and uh, we won that race, and it was an oval. And it was a high banked oval. It was a super speedway, and that to me, uh, there was again that comfort level, as much as you can ever be comfortable in one of those places. Just understanding the nuances that much better. So, if I look back at the '82 year, yeah, it was wonderful to be second in the championship, be rookie of the year, and we did one less race than everybody. What really stood out for me that year was going to Michigan. You know, we had finished third in the 500 there. Um, but when I say third, I think we were two laps down. So that, that it doesn't, you know, it sounds good until you put some detail to it. We got there in September for the 150 and everything started to click. And that really was tremendously satisfying. I think not just for me, but for Steve and you know, for everybody on the team. What did that do for your career, Bob? You had been on the scene for a while trying to break through. Yep. You finally broke through. You planted a flag and said, look, MNFers, you're going to have a problem with me. What do you recall the reaction to that? Because it, it did set the stage. For sure. A lot of the teams that I'd written to who either didn't respond about a, a driving form or sent a don't call us, we'll call you letter back. All, a lot of the, some of those teams all of a sudden were knocking on the door. You know, that's typical in racing, right? But, you know, Jim Truman was the guy that brought me to the dance. And I just felt I, mean, I owed him a lot. You know, at the end of 1981, my career could have easily been over. You know, in, in the years leading up to 81, you know, in 79, I came back from Europe, drove for Herb uh, Kaplan, did five races in the Can-Am, won one of them, you know, ran I think we had fastest lap in three of them. Qualified, I think, on the front row every race. Had a couple poles. Trois Riviere, I think we were on pole, and somewhere else, Laguna, we were on pole. And 
everybody wants you. You know, Paul Newman one, one offered me a ride. Carl Haas offered me a ride. But I'd given I've given my word to Herb, and in the end, we our, the car we had for 1980 was not a good car at all, and we suffered for that. So all of a sudden, like I said earlier, you know, one minute when you're when you're successful, everybody wants you, and when you're when you're not, nobody wants you, and yet you're the same guy. There had been a lot of ups and downs uh, in my career to that point. So, you know, Jim Trimlin was the guy that, and, and this is a true, this is absolutely true. He said to me in, I don't know, probably mid 81, he said, if you're smart, you'll say yes to everything I say. And of course, I knew Jim well, and uh, I had no problem saying yes. Wow. And he said, he said, we're going to start an Andy car team. I want you to drive it. You got to find the cars and the engines. I'll do everything else. You got to help me put the team together. And uh, off we went. And so at the end of 82, having, you know, having had a year like that, uh, obviously everybody was pretty excited, pretty proud. And so the idea of leaving Jim Truman, uh, that just wasn't, that wasn't on the radar screen for anybody. And so off we went to the, into 1983. You know, and I did have other offers uh, later on, but I just felt Jim was, I owed it to him. And uh, I'm glad we did. One might get the impression young Wayne Taylor was an angry angry driver in a story from the 1980s that i like to call rage against the machine our man taylor does little to dispute this notion i had a race in south africa it was it was a bmw single make series this guy kept hitting me going down the straight and bumping and bumping and bumping me and i was getting pissed off and he was a former f1 powerboat guy i remember getting up i'd, I'd had enough and so I got to Sunset Corner, Kyle Lamy, and I tapped him on the side of the car to put him sideways. And I then uh, went straight to his door, front door, and I literally changed down and I pushed him off the track. And I kept pushing until I pushed him right through the catch fences. I was so mad. <laughs> and and uh, the next thing, uh, he came and he had his helmet in his hand. He was about to hit me and, and some guys held held us back and then it was a big court hearing and stuff but it was all it was all thrown out but it, it was so stupid of this guy to keep doing this i remember thinking when i did i, I, ne- I never had so much rage in my life that i just wanted him completely buried into the barriers and i pushed him through three rows of catch fencing and about in fact i had to change down once we were on the grass i had to go back down to second to have more momentum to get him into the fence you needed more torque to get to and, then I'm, and then I put it. Then I put it into reverse, drove back on the track, and finished the race. <laughs> <laughs> and the car was fucked. What uh, happens after the race? Does he come chasing you? Do the stewards? Uh, yeah, what do yeah. they do? The helmets and everything. Oh yes, uh, it was. It was very tough. No, no, nobody hit each other. But uh, there was a court case, and uh, yeah, you know, motorsport court case. And I was never. You know, nobody really liked me because I just did things the way I wanted to do them. And I did things for my future, not for PR in those days. And uh, so, you know, I had all these people against me. So so he should have been suspended, for, but he didn't get suspended. And um, um, they just said racing incident or whatever. And it just pissed me off for a long time. I still feel like, okay, I ended it the way I want to end it. I had him stuck in the fence. With a background in Barber Saab and Indy Lights, Justin Bell was close to achieving his dream of competing at the Indianapolis 500 in 1996, the first year of the Indy Racing League's takeover of the Speedway, where not every team that entered was truly qualified to participate. As Mr. Bell shares, 
in pursuit of that dream, he was prepared to die every day. So there I am. It's the, it's, I was at one of those lulls in my career that unfortunately happened to me way too many times. And I could see that with the, the IRL formation, that maybe there was an amazing opportunity to get involved because why not? I was still young and I thought it was a, a great opportunity. Now, what was happening, of course, was that they weren't, they, no one was pretty too hot at all. And it went against the whole philosophy to have European drivers. That's not what it was all about, right? It was, it was really to try and get a lot of American talent in, in a way. But I, I hounded Tony George about it. I really, really did. And to try and get to Indy. And, you know, in all fairness, he said, come out. I think we can try and get you in a car. And I had $50,000 sponsorship from a hair implant, transplant guy through some girl that I was sleeping with in Pittsburgh. Other than that, really a strong connection, right, um, to this sponsor. And as you know, the Bells do not need hair plugs. But we just pretended I'd had it done. I can't remember what the bullshit thing was. But it was this guy just wanted to wanted to be at India. Thought it'd be fun. Eventually, I got the call that we we had the car, so I turned up, and I was excited. I Bell got me a new helmet. It was all I was all ready to go. Walking through, remember, I'd never been to India by the way, so it was all new. But walking through the garage, past all these beautiful cars, all these beautifully prepared cars, and then going down, down through the garage, down, down through the garage. And then I see this one, Tempro Jufri was my team. And I'm looking at this car. I go, okay, that can't be it. Let me just go back up here. They look really good up here. You know, that end of the garage looked great. And, I, and I, that end of the garage looked really shitty. Anyway, it was my car. And they, of course, as you know, mechanics and everybody are always super nice. Everybody's nice in racing. You, you know, there's no, you know, no reflection on them. But so I got kind of fitted for the seat and they were running me through how to approach uh, the, you know, the, going to the rookie orientation. And uh, Johnny Rutherford was my, was sort of a little bit of my first mentor there, um, which was amazing to have that, that sage advice. And Scott Brayton was my driver coach for that you know he was the one that was assigned to wow. sort of like make me short get through it so i had out there like all the other rookies why wouldn't i be able to do this you have to do five laps or whatever it's between 180 and 185 shit and i mean i could do that you know and i you know you know but it was raining bad weather really cloudy and wet so i and i'd done what everyone told me to i got like an extended stay hotel suite you know for the like apartment for the month and I go every time it, it was our sessions, it was like damp and it was, you had to wait. And as you know, as, as a driver, that really starts to wear on you a little bit. But my first laps out for real in the car, because they said we're going to run a lot of wing and no, no, no boost, you know, really low boost just to get you up there. But I'm going down the back straight and there's this bloody big digital black board. I was in a number 15 that set up on the board. It said number 15 on my first time by wow okay back into the pits yeah and i see them all looking around the back of the car and one of those group marshals is there i said what is it on the radio they said oh someone saw fluid on your back tires oh okay where's it gone yeah it's gone all right so i go back out two laps later back in big number 15 on the board yeah it's fluid on your fluid on your rear tires or there's see a streak i'm going well this is starting to get a bit mad isn't it how am i supposed to concentrate on this i mean I, it felt fast and I said, the other thing is, I said, guys, it's going down the straight. I mean, I've driven some powerful cars. This is, there's, there's no, it's not no boost. This thing is 
freaking chirping wheels as I'm going down the back street, basically. And they're like, no, no, it's got no boost. It's on zero boost. I'm going, well, okay. Basically, as you can imagine, over the next week, it managed to deconstruct rather like a Michelin chef might do to a souffle is what it did to my ego, confidence, and self feeling of self-preservation was the only thing that started to go up. It was a disaster. I mean, the cut tub was like delaminating and this and I, you know, meanwhile, um, you know, the Mexican kid, he'd already gone through, went on, you know, to, to do quite well in Indy. Everyone, everyone went through rookie orientation. I was still stuck in like 190 because I did never did more than two laps. And then the weather's, and it started to get really, really close to the edge. So I was pleading with them to throw the car out. Uh, Johnny Rutherford came up to me. Or for, sorry, first of all, I called my dad to come over. And dad could hear in my voice, he needed to come and spend some time with me. And it's funny because I'm in the main bed and he's on the sofa. Just like what a role reversal, right? Oh. I spent my whole childhood on the sofa while he was, you know, getting ready for races on the, in the big bed. And I remember... Every morning, Marshall, I would tidy up my wash bag and my dirty underwear and everything. I'd make sure my bathroom was tidy because I truly didn't think I was coming back that day. Jesus. I thought someone else would be cleaning up my, my, my stuff because it shook me to my core how dangerous this car was. And then that same day, Johnny Rutherford came up to me and he sat me down. He said, you know, kid. You, you, he said, I know you're fast enough to do this. He said, we've, we've seen you in other things. We know what you can do. He said, you should go now, though. I said, what about my sponsor? He said, it won't matter if you can't walk out of here. He said, you need to leave. And I was like, when he says that. Um, and so basically, I metaphorically did, right? I went and said to the team, I'm out, I'm out, I'm done, whatever you want to do with the car. Uh, which went on to crash on the first lap, by the way. And the guy just about got away with it. Because uh, they'd said, if you hit the wall, this thing will explode. So here's the way to cap that off. Because over this time, Scott had been very kind to me, Scott Raiden. For his qualifying, they let me go on his headset. Wow. And then it went quiet, didn't it? So um, <sighs> I never, I went back as a fan 10 years later. That's it. So when he part, when he died, and I heard that silence, you know, on the headset, uh, I was like, "What am I doing here?" Some things in life, Justin, are meant to be passed on, and I wish I and I think it, it was right. I think what's so strange, Marshall, and this is kind of a confession, it took my ability to put myself right on the edge away because I'm an artistic kid. You know me. Yeah. I'm a creative. I make sh- I, in. I imagine things, and none of the really great drivers are great with imagination. I've talked about it with Gilles. You don't have great imagination to drive at 246 around Michigan with its braking sideways. You know, I was a creative. I have imagination. I know exactly what can go wrong. And it's weird because as a driver, I was always amazingly good with time management. And I think if I could have cracked it, I'd have probably been quite good because I know how to, I was sensitive, you know, into the car. And I think it would have suited me, um, but that took it away. So I never, I never went back, man. And I had an offer a couple of years later, like, oh, you, you know, we got a sponsorship. You should come. I was like, no, thanks. Just shows it was done for me. But that was my indie story. I'm captivated by the place, obviously, like everyone is. But I love watching it. But I, which is why I have an even bigger amount of respect for Dixon and Elio and Canaan. The phrase 
12 hours from bottle to throttle is invoked with Chris Neifel's tale of driving for Jack Roush during the 1986 SCCA Trans Am season. Roush, the renowned cat in the hat, was a no-nonsense team owner. It meant he had zero interest for the off-track shenanigans. And with Neifel and his pal Darren Brassfield, there were always going to be copious amounts of headaches and distractions for Jack Roush to resolve. Can a driver be canned for cracking open too many cans? Let's hear what Neifel has to say. 1986 was the first year for the XR4TI for the Mercure. So the cars were transitioning from the, the Capris. The Mustangs ran in the IMSA series and GTO, and the Capris were running in the uh, Trans Am series. Starting in, uh, in 86, um, Halsmer ran the XR4TI from pretty much from day one. And then the rest of us transitioned, you know, during the course of the year from the Capri to the XR4TI to the Mercure. We were in a pretty tight uh, manufacturer's championship battle with Chevrolet because uh, Wally Dallenbach Jr., who had been with Roush the previous year in 85, moved over to uh, Chevrolet, which was the year that uh, Protofab started. So Charlie Selix and Gary Pratt left Roush at the end of 85, and along with Jim Miller, they started Protofab, which is now sort of morphed into Pratt-Miller, if you will. Not exactly, but that's that's where the tentacles lead. The family tree goes that way. So you had the, you know, you had Protofab split from Roush at the end of 85, and they did the Riley Camaros, the you know, the Bob Riley design Camaros, which were great race cars. So we were in a tight manufacturer's battle with them uh, throughout 1986. Wally Jr. won the driver's championship in 86. We ended up winning the manufacturers. We actually beat each other out. You know, it was the classic thing. And we've actually seen Penske do this in, in IndyCar racing where you steal points from each other enough, you end up not being the driver's champion because we had too many guys between Halsmer, Pruitt, myself. You know, Klaus Ludwig did some races with us and you can, you know, go on and on. We ended up taking taking points from each other and it cost us, it cost one of us anyway, um, the, the chance for the driver's championship because Halsmer was second, I was third, Wally Jr. won it. So now we go to Road Atlanta, October 86, and there were only a couple of races left in the uh, in the series. We had the opportunity there to uh, clinch the manufacturers, and it was me who won the race. It was a torrential rain. It was it was just it was crazy how much rain there was. I know the race was you know delayed and all kinds of stuff because it was just it was really really wet the night before. To, to stack the decks, Roush had brought in Darren Brassfield uh, to drive in a Capri. There was there was another that he had added, like, I think we were running like five or six cars. It was crazy um, how many cars we had at, the, at that race. Me and Brassfield were staying in the Holiday Inn in Sewanee, Georgia, which had this, this stupid little bar, but it was like amazing. They kept like adding on to it, and it was like they just add rooms, but there would like you'd have to walk through a room, there'd be a door, then walk into another room. And it was like a maze to get back. So we were literally in the furthest back room you could get. And me and Brassfield are sitting there at this high top table. Hell, we'd been drinking beers for hours. And it's it's probably, I don't know, 10 o'clock or so. Seriously, without exaggerating, there were probably 20 beer bottles on the table. And knowing me and Darren, it was probably 30 beer bottles yeah. on the table. <laughs> and we see, we see Roush, little Roush, you know, always wearing his hat. We see Jack's hat. He couldn't see Jack because he's too short. So we see Jack's hat sort of 
coming into the room and we're like, uh Oh, <laughs> and he comes, he comes walking up to the table. And he, he says nothing. He looks at me and Darren turns around and <laughs> walks away. <laughs> I'm like going, Oh man, he's pissed. <laughs> so we get to the, we get to the race. Jack, Jack literally doesn't talk to me at all. The, the whole day, he doesn't even look at me. And uh, so we're basically sitting around waiting for this race to start because, you know, like I say, the weather was bad and it kept getting delayed. Brassfield has a crash um, early first, second lap, whatever, wipes that car out. And he wasn't the only one. Everyone was having problems because it was a flood. I go on. I win the race. Clinch the manufacturer's championship for Ford Motorsport, Lincoln Mercury, Capri, Mercure, all of that stuff. Now Roush has got to stand on the podium with me and get the get the manufacturer's award trophy. He doesn't even look at me on the podium. He will not look at me on the podium. He doesn't, he doesn't shake my hand. He doesn't acknowledge. He literally stood there and it was like, I was invisible. It was hilarious. And needless to say, that was, um, I didn't drive for Roush in 87. (laughs) (laughs) All because you decided to enjoy beer. We, we had a few cold beers, and we were strictly adhering to the 12 hours bottle, the throttle. So, you know, we had plenty of time before the race was going to start. And, uh, yeah, I don't think he took too kindly to that. But it was uh, it was pretty funny. But it was just the awkwardness. I mean, you could uh, – the fact that he literally – he never even – he never even said good job, like, after the race. Like, yeah, nice drive. <laughs> he just like, won the was, manufacturer's championship for him. Well, it must have been must have been tough out there. Everyone was having problems, but man, somehow or another, you managed to uh, drive your drunken ass around, and you were the only one not to crash, huh? How about that? You know, I mean, nothing, right? Uh, it was a good one. That was pretty funny. But yeah, me and Brassfield having some fun. You know, Roush just didn't appreciate us like he should have. I mean, how can you not love me and Darren? Indeed, one of the finer questions in life: How could you not love Chris Neifel and Darren Brassfield? If there is a need for beer depopulation in your area, invite those two. Well, we are done with the special feature part two, celebrating 1,000 episodes on this stupid podcast of mine. I want to thank you again for listening. We have a part three coming for you. We have at least one or two new names that will be on that episode. Roll that out for you next Monday. Thank you again to Cooper Tires the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA. Get every episode we have ever made, MarshallPruittPodcast.com, which also has all the various ways that you might subscribe.